Bye. You're listening to KPCA LP Petaluma, California. Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman of B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. Welcome back to this week's program. It's great to have you here. It's wonderful to look out the window of the studio and see the sun shining. Uh, welcome part of our life here in beautiful Northern California. So we have two guests uh, on our program today. During our second segment, Rev. Erwin Keller, the spiritual leader of Congregation Ne'er Shalom and Katadi, will be with us. And here in our first segment, I want to welcome Joe White, uh, a local uh, attorney. And we're going to have some big discussions here today. So welcome to the studio. Thank you, Ted. I, um, I want to let everybody know that one of the purposes of this program is to meet different people in our community who affect our lives in different ways over the course of our being. And uh, Jill is here because she works with people. That's her job. Anyway, Jill, how, how did you get into the attorney business? And uh, tell us a little bit about that part of your life that led up to where you are today. Well, it was a circuitous, long journey. You were born at a very young age, <laughs> yeah, right? Is that true? That's right. Oh, you were born, okay. um, I was born in Boston and grew up partly on the East Coast and partly on the West Coast. Um, I was fortunate enough to have parents who demonstrated interest, strong interest in education and I went to Sarah Lawrence College undergraduate, was able to spend the junior year in Paris, and then went to Middlebury College and their program in Paris for a master's in French literature, not having yet decided whether to become a French literature professor or go to law school. Both were on my mind. So I decided after teaching a year in French to uh, to go to law school. I went to McGeorge in Sacramento, and at that time, Justice Kennedy was teaching a program in Salzburg, so studied constitutional law with him there as part of the uh, overall legal education, and then started practicing family law. So they say there are reasons for everything, and um, family law is, it involves so much more than legal events. We're really working with emotions and psychology. Um, so I probably didn't know what I was getting into at the time, and the years in Petaluma especially have shown me my place of service in the community, what I'm meant to do. Once a family law attorney told me he wasn't sure if he was a lawyer or a family therapist at time or a, a, a counselor because of how much effort went into working with individuals and couples uh, going through that very difficult time in their lives. How long have you been practicing in Petaluma? So it will be almost eight years, and I've been a family law attorney for 24 years. The big difference in the Petaluma years 
has been that I walked away from litigation completely. Mm. And uh, that's a very different way of approaching conflict and resolution. You walked away from litigation into? Into both mediation and collaborative practice. So in any form of mediation, we mediators are neutral, and that neutrality is foundational to the process. We're not there to advocate for one party over the other, but rather to listen actively, attentively, and help the parties or the participants develop agreements that they can both live with and that are going to work for their family. So uh, isn't the legal system set up on the basis that uh, each party, whether it be litigation for uh, civil issues and stuff like that, financial issues, and divorce, but that each party be appropriately represented? So how is that in this collaborative system? Doesn't each person need an attorney to sign off on everything that he or she is doing? So that's an interesting set of questions, um, and you asked about collaborative, which first I might want to clarify that's different from mediation because in the collaborative process, it's a highly structured model where each party is, in fact, represented. So in the capacity of collaborative attorney, I'm not neutral. I do advocate for my client, and we collaborative practitioners form teams across disciplines. So a team might will have two attorneys, each representing their respective clients, and will have a neutral. It could be a mental health professional or a financial professional who is trained in both collaborative practice and mediation. And then we might have coaches. Each party might have their own coach around language, and sometimes there'll be a child specialist who does, in fact, speak with the child and bring the child's views to the table. The child doesn't come. And so both of those models, collaborative and mediation and integrative mediation, um, are processes by which we can avoid litigation. So, All right, so the bottom line is, though, that those those legal requirements of individual representation have to be met somehow in this system, and they are by each person having his or her uh, own attorney uh, in this. But that by broadening the field of intermediation into uh, getting people to listen to each other, that changes the whole process. Yeah, it it really does change the dynamic and also allows space for a great deal of creativity in developing agreements. So in mediation, the parties are free to have independent counsel or not. I strongly urge my clients to have an independent counsel review the marital settlement agreement or other agreements. They're not forced to because they do have a right to represent themselves. And is in, in this process, uh, um, do, do we 
litigation issues come up? Does there, you know, I don't know how anecdotal. Can you be anecdotal in in a discussion about this? It might be helpful to illustrate some of this. Uh, I know there's client privacy, and you have to be careful how you say that. So I fully understand that. But if you can be anecdotal in any way to help us understand what might happen when a couple comes in, that would be great. Okay. Sometimes the couple will come together, uh-huh. and I will introduce both mediation and integrative mediation to them as a possible process. Uh-huh. So integrative is unlike solo mediation because it's two professionals. So there's a lot of support for the couple. And I generally partner with a mental health professional here in Petaluma who's trained in mediation and also in integrative mediation. We all do a lot of ongoing training mm-hmm. uh, because the processes are again, highly structured. Um, Sometimes a party will come to me and feel that they need representation, that mediation, solo mediation won't work, possibly because they have no knowledge of finances or in for some other reason feel that it's a very uneven playing field. And so they want representation. And in that sort of a case, I, if appropriate, I recommend collaborative practice and the collaborative process uh, as a model and um, feel out whether it's an appropriate fit for that couple. So in, and then, you know, you've asked about litigation and sometimes in a situation where a party needs restraining orders, well, that's that's a matter for the courts. Mm-hmm. And even when there are restraining orders issues, um, like orders, it doesn't mean that we can't bring the case back into a process to move forward with out-of-court conflict settlement. And I have one of those going on right now. I think the parties will be much better served keeping the case out of the court system. Yeah, so there's a Sonoma County group. You you introduced me a few years ago to uh, uh, a group. And tell us about that, how they got together and what it's doing. So the Collaborative Council of the Redwood Empire is the Sonoma County chapter of collaborative practice. There's a practice group in Marin, too. Currently, I'm the president of CCRE and um, have a hard-working, organized board helping move forward this, this different approach to uh, resolving family issues. And it's not just for family law, uh, though primarily our cases are family law. It can be applied to probate or other situations, even intellectual property. Um, Our group does mostly family law and includes professionals who have financial expertise and professionals who are in the mental health areas of practice as well as attorneys. And how, 
how is that group reaching out to the community? Because obviously uh, in the world around, we hear about all the big fights uh, in divorce and in family law and the tensions and the, the negative implications of it. And this sounds like this model, while there's certainly trauma involved and change involved, that there might be another way to make it happen in a way that doesn't create such a tumultuous environment. One of the ways that we reach out is through a volunteer process of, it's called Divorce Options, and the second Saturday of the month, we offer our time. By we, I mean a financial professional, a mental health professional, and an attorney volunteering three hours of time to meet with the public, and the public pays $35 to have three hours of (laughs) presentation, yes, on um, the choices. We talk about what the collaborative process looks like, Uh pros and cons, and what mediation looks like, and also litigation. So litigation has its place. We, like-minded collaborative practitioners, really believe that the mainstream ought to be out-of-court conflict resolution and that litigation is uh, reserved more for when it's we're out of options. So you did bring up this $35 charge, so I could ask the big question now. Um, is cost-wise, do you have estimates of cost for uh, collaborative versus uh, the litigious is open is open-ended? I understand that, but on an average, I remember a number of years ago when I lived in South Florida, and it's been a while, but the the average divorce was at twenty-one thousand dollars twenty-five years ago or thirty years ago. So what's what's that like today? So. That's a good question, Ted, and commonly asked. The I like to say that the cost of the process is driven by the level of conflict. Mm, okay. In both ways. Yes. Okay. Both systems, the litigious and the collaborative. Except system. that with litigation, in my experience, this may not be the case for all litigators, uh, there's there are other factors at play, such as attorney ego, where mm-hmm. litigators, some, not all, want to win. And in collaborative practice and mediation and integrated mediation, we're not there to win. You're not there for you to win or for the attorney to win. It's for the individuals involved to be the winners, end up the winners in the situation. Yes, and I want to leave my clients better right. than I found them. And that's a, that's a beautiful mission to be in this very tense and setting that you've chosen to work for your life to try to make a difference. And I, I thank you, actually, for offering that to our community because most people, when they think about if they have to come to this particular point in their lives, think about the trauma of it, the cost of it, uh, what it's doing to the family, and the litigious nature of it. And so this is a great alternative for it. 
So uh, I met you through B'nai Israel Jewish Center, and uh, you were connected to us initially by coming to some classes about what's called Musar in Jewish tradition, which is our ethical teachings and uh, looking at how we can ultimately make our lives better by making our internal workings better, as well as our external workings in relationship with the other in the world. And by recognizing, recognizing that we are part of that connection, uh, it gives us a new mission in life to affect ourselves and other people. So how did, how did you choose to come into this Musar piece? And uh, ultimately, my question is going to be, how did it affect your mission in life and your work particularly? But how did you get to it, and what did you find when you got there, and how has it helped you? I heard about Musar and didn't quite know what it was, so I joined a study group at B'nai Israel Jewish Center, and that really brought my work home. It also, being part of the moral and ethical inquiry in a Jewish context felt like putting down roots in Petaluma. Mm. And it taught me to to be present in a different way to other people. In Musar, we talk about the other, and we talk about our others, and, and the difference in not otherizing. So... Um, it helped me really understand that another person's experience is real and valid, and it's not for me to manipulate their path, um, but to listen and if they ask for feedback, then um, to separate my own experience from reflecting back what what I'm hearing from them, if that makes any sense. It, well, but our, uh, isn't each of us always reflecting mostly our own experience? Um, one is to reflect back only what they told us, and we can hear that and say, you just told me something, and I reflect back what you say, like a mirror. But if we want to, part of Jewish tradition was, um, and I, I, is this call, thing called hokhacha, uh, which is reproving our neighbor, which means uh, it, it's, it's very controversial because it sets up some dynamics that I would question in today's society. But part of it is that we have a responsibility at least to help another person to look at the world in a way that may be healthier, better, more moral, and all that. So how do, we how do you not judge or not offer something of your own experience? Well, Ted, I think, the, I think it helped me ask more questions uh -huh. rather than make assumptions and also brought into play more curiosity and less judgment. Ah, that's it. So, actually, uh, one of my teachings that I try to emphasize about Judaism is we don't always have the answers, but we have to always make sure we have the right questions. And 
that might lead us to some answers that would be helpful to each of us individually or corporately too. So the questioning is a very important part in Jewish life. Often people come to me and say, what I like a lot about what I've learned in Jewish tradition is that we can question things and ask questions. And being able to hear the answers, of course, is, uh, is another step forward. I think we live in, the, in a way where we're so assumptive. Mm-hmm. And so we're operating on false information. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we won't even get to the false information <laughs> of, uh, of the world we're going through today. So can you think of any particular uh, experiences in the Musar uh, classes that you took, any concepts or any ideas that would be illuminating for our listeners to think about? Um, I know there are teachings on gratitude, on self-reflection, on all kinds of things. Any of those that stuck with you that you can pick out of your experience? Certainly gratitude and also attunement and attention to one's own bias Mm. or overriding perspective or tendency. And that, that sort of gets into looking at compulsive or automatic behavior patterns that we all have, especially if we haven't done the work to identify them and try to make right turns instead of cycling the same behaviors and responses. So um, both in Musar and bringing that into my work, um, I try to ask if there's a better way of responding and certainly not reacting. And it's difficult in one's personal life. It's almost easier in a work setting. Uh, it's interesting that um, uh, many of the modern uh, psychological theories uh, have roots in religious traditions that just uh, label them in different ways. So as you were talking, I'm thinking of what's called narrative therapy, which is... Uh, on the assumption that we all have a narrative, a certain story we live over and over again. It can be our compulsive reactions. Every time we hear this, we give this response. This is a trigger for that thought. And one of the goals of such a process from a therapeutic point of view would be to get us to rewrite the narrative, to be able to respond, to practice in a different way, to, to come to that. And cognitive therapy does it in a little bit different way. Here in Jewish tradition, we have this whole system of Musar, of our ethical teachings that attempt to tell us to rethink how we are perceiving the world, looking at the world. And in essence, we have the power, recognizing that we have the power to change that narrative and create that new narrative. So in in uh, the secular world, we could call it therapy, but in, in Judaism, it's not called therapy. It's called integral to our musar, to our ethical tradition, how we're going to live our lives. And of course, as you've been talking all the way along, whether it be the family law part or the musar part, being able to listen to what's happening in the world around us 
and process it in a way that can be helpful to ourselves and to others is really one of the keys. I think that's a, a very important part. Absolutely. Um, and that we have the power to change the narrative. We don't have to keep playing the same tape, that we are the author of the script. And I bet when you get into the collaborative divorce pieces and the discussions, you're hearing five years of narrative, 10 years of narrative, 30 years of narrative of people reliving the same process in their relationships that they can't change, that they haven't been able to change. And that's why they end up coming to you or to the collaborative group to try to move on with their lives in a different way. Yes, and inviting them to listen to one another, even if they don't agree. Mm -hmm. So one person expresses his or her truth or experience, and when the other participant doesn't want to hear it, I ask that they just let that person express themselves and listen, and it doesn't mean it's the truth, but it's the truth for that person. So we need that to even begin a conversation. We do, and it's interesting that theme has been on this radio program a couple of times in many way, different formats uh, over the past couple of months, so it's kind of fascinating that it's coming forward too. And I know that uh, I had heard about the Musar group. Uh, somebody said, oh, I can't go there. It's, it's too personal. It's getting too personal. And yet, isn't that what it's about? <laughs> There's it not much without getting personal. There's not much. And being able to feel safe within a system that will allow you to use Jewish teachings and to stimulate our thoughts and our processes to make our personal lives different and the people with whom we relate. And you've touched on something very important by using the word safe. Go ahead, tell me about it. The containers that we hold as a collaborative group or in mediation or integrated mediation are safe. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really very important. Well, believe it or not, Jill, our conversation went quickly and our time is almost up. I know you thought beforehand you were worried how long and what would the conversation be like, but we did it. And I thank you so much, Jill White, for being with us in our studio today and sharing your professional life, but also a piece of your spiritual journey and how the two are interrelated. Thank you so much. You're listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCALP, Petaluma, California. Please join us following our break for the second segment of our program.
Welcome back to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We're here in the studio for the second segment of our program on this bright and shiny, sunny day here in Petaluma. And during our second segment, our, my guest is Reb Erwin Keller, Congregation Ner Shalom in Katadi. Uh, Reb Erwin and I have been working together for a number of years already. Uh, we, the two congregations, do some activities together. We have a shared religious school and all that kind of good stuff. Well, we have, we have definitely a well-worn route between the two buildings, for sure. We do have a well-worn route. There was talk even when I, in the early days of before you were there, I uh, was talking about, they were talking about finding a property somewhere halfway between your current building <laughs> and my current building where we could live together. So, uh, yeah, there have been that yeah. talk at one point. Really, and the, the halfway point ends up being the IHOP on Redwood Highway. Oh, I love chocolate chip <laughs> pancakes. You know, chocolate chip <laughs> pancakes would be great. Forget that locks and bagel oh. stuff. Just give me chocolate chip pancakes. Hey there, Ted. Nice <laughs> to see you. Nice Good to see, see you with headphones on. Headphones on, In the yeah. radio. Yeah, I know. I'm all dressed up. I have a tie on today. So, so do you, though. So right? do I, yeah. I always dress up the radio. That's unusual for us. That is unusual. So, um, you know, you interesting, of course, my first guest is Jill White, and she's an attorney, and interestingly, you come from that background, too, and uh, perhaps you can give us some... In fact, one of my, one of my co-parents is uh, the head of the international organization working on collaborative practice. Oh, um, okay. So I'm, I'm even connected to the collaborative practice sort wow. of as a family matter. Yeah. But what was your question? Your question, um, law. Uh, yeah, yeah I was background. a lawyer once. I was, I was yeah. a lawyer. And we grew up in, and you, uh, tell, tell us yeah. a Yeah, well, about I grew you. up in Chicago, uh-huh. uh, like you did. Uh-huh. And, um, I, uh, yeah, I ended up in, uh, you know, I had wanted to be a rabbi from a young age, but at the time that I would have applied, to, that I was looking at applying to, uh, uh, to go to seminary, to go to the reform seminary, I would have gone to at the time. Um, no one was accepting openly gay applicants in the mm-hmm. rabbinic world. And, uh, and I consulted with some, uh, some folks who said, well, you know, you could just be in the closet the whole time, and then you can come out later after you get ordained. And, and it seemed so, and these, were, and these were people who had done just that, because that was right. the only way to, it was, it was the only choice available to them. And, but for me at the time, it felt really, really wrong to do that. I, I, it felt dishonest for something that was a spiritual calling. Uh, so I didn't, and I and I went in other directions. The AIDS epidemic hit. I ended up being an activist, and that brought me into law. Um, and I moved to California with a, a bad law job, but soon um, was working for the AIDS Legal Referral Panel and was its director for a number of years in the 1990s. Where did you go to law school? At University of Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was in Chicago for, for all that time. Um, but now I've been in California for, for more than half my life. And uh, so I came to California. I ended up at the AIDS Legal Referral Panel. I was there for many years. And at the same time, um, started in my off hours uh, with a, <laughs> co-founding a, a drag a cappella quartet called the Kinsey Six. I'm not certain how many of the listeners were expecting that turn. Um, and uh, I performed with the Kinsey Six for 21 years. And in 2000, I actually gave up law to be full-time in dress, heels, wig, um, singing on stage, doing comedy and politics on stage. Mm. 
Um, and then the uh, and then the rabbi thing rolled back around kind of of its own accord. Um, I moved up here to Sonoma County. I joined Congregation Ner Shalom. The rabbi was in the process of leaving, and there was a, a bit of a vacuum happening. And at a certain point, um, uh, 11 years ago, we were heading into the High Holy Days, and I said, you know, I can just cover this because um, we were involved in a rabbinic search and there was some panic going on. I said, why don't I cover the High Holy Days? And that was the beginning of it. So, so I sort of stepped into this work that I had always wanted to do, and I stepped in it not through school but through practice. And only now am I actually in school um, for my ordination. Yeah, you're in rabbinical school now. I am. That's, uh, that's an amazing thing to be doing at this stage of life. It's so different being in school at this, at this stage of life. Um, yeah. Uh, when are you finishing up? Uh, I think I have another year and a half. Okay. Um, trying not to feel too pressured by the ticking clock. Right. Well, got plenty of time. Plenty God willing. Time. God willing, we have plenty. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking as you were describing this uh, urge for participation, I'm thinking for myself too. So, you know, what was there, even when you were younger, that made you want to be uh, a rabbi when you decided you were going to go to law school, reasons are clear, and et cetera, et cetera. But the first part of that, what, what was there? What was there in Jewish life? What was there in you yeah. that you think made, yeah. uh, made that difference? It's an interesting question. It's yeah. something I talk about with some of my classmates as well. Um, what is it that you know? You know, there, you know at, at, uh, in, my, in my work with Ner Shalom, I, I work with a lot of people who had bad synagogue experiences, bad Jewish experiences growing up and ended up feeling very alienated and are only now coming back into um, sort of a broader, uh, a broader embrace of Judaism. For me, I, it, was, it was always a place of belonging. Um, uh, I had wonderful teachers. I always had wonderful teachers. All of my teachers when I was a kid in Hebrew school and religious school were wonderful and inspiring. I had an inspiring rabbi, and I loved learning. And in that environment, the place where you could spend your life learning about Judaism was in the rabbinate. You know, there wasn't a model for the, the citizen scholar um, in the way that there, there is in, in other branches of Judaism. Right. In the Orthodox tradition, many uh, are ordained, but they go into their businesses, they go into the other professions, mm -hmm. and there are models for continuing one's deep religious education. Yeah. But we don't have that in the more liberal movements. Right, right, right. They, ha I mean, that is something, um, you know, that's something really beautiful. It's really a model right, to look is. for, it, uh, particularly if it could be available to women, too, mm -hmm. um, which in that world it's not. Right. Um, and so, yeah, uh, so in these past 10 years, I've had the ability not only to do sort of the rabbinic work, the hands-on piece, but always have study as part of my life. And I always want study to be part of my life. I don't want to ever be in, in some point in my life where I'm not learning new things. I can't imagine it. Right. Yeah, and now I'm thinking back of why, you know, I made my decision uh, or about this probably when I was 13 or 14. Uh -huh. I said to my rabbi, I want to be a rabbi. And you know, what was there? I think it was the belonging part, too. I think that was a, a key piece. My family life was kind of disheveled, and mm. there was a certain stability and structure that in the synagogue, in the community where I was embraced. And I continued on that path, the study and the learning and 
also the leading part and being able to teach and all that. So I guess that's to me, there's also an element that has to do with transmission mm-hmm. um, because that's always been kind of my role in um, both in the in sort of the Jewish world, but also in my family life. That um, I'm the person that learns family history and transmits it on uh-huh. to to others. And I I think for me, there's something very beautiful about um, sort of looking in both directions, past and future, back and forward, and um, and taking some of those gems and bringing them into our lives and finding out how to fashion them in a way that will um, that will make them exciting in the future as well. Right, yeah. I was edging on that a little bit in the discussion with Jill in the first part about modern psychology and some of the teachings and the ways they approach it. And traditional Jewish things that looked at it the same thing in many ways from a spiritual, religious, historical point of view that came, reached for the same result. Right. I mean, uh, our Jewish tradition does not have a lot to say about brain chemistry. Right. On the other hand, there is much about sort of um, our uh, orientation to our lives and, um, and, and being resilient and enduring um, what we experience in our lives that we can uh, that we can address from a spiritual perspective, right? Um, with great effectiveness, right? And you know the systems for changing behaviors, for evaluating behaviors that are built in into Judaism, uh, the high holy days and the different seasons of the year that reflect different parts of who we are, etc. Mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. It's all part of that. So. We had talked about uh, spending some time today in our little discussion here, since you and I do talk occasionally. Uh, We had talked about uh, focusing on something that's a little unusual in the Jewish community these days, and that's the role of of Yiddish. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Um, So, um, how did we end up here? Uh, I started learning Yiddish when I was in college. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't grow up speaking it, and... uh, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, when I say Yiddish, the, the first thing they say to me is, oh, you know, my parents, my grandparents spoke it so that I wouldn't understand what was right. going on. And, and, and that is, that's the common response. Um, it's not everybody's experience. You know, we also have peers who were raised in Yiddish or went to Yiddish folk schools or, um, you know, or knew Yiddish songs when they were growing up. But there is also something about Yiddish that's a focal point for some of the the breach of transmission, the breaking of transmission that a lot of American Jews grow up with. Like we have a certain displacement because our ancestors came over and they, they dropped their stories. Like the stories were really hard and they dropped them and they didn't convey them. They conveyed the experience of trauma without the story that went with it. Mm-hmm. And they often dropped their practices and as soon as they could drop their language, except um, for insider use, and their children were not insiders, or their grandchildren were not insiders, and that's really hard. You know, it's hard to uh, to say. You know, I and this is of course the experience of people who come from Eastern European Jews. This is not a global Jewish experience. Could you, for our listeners who don't know what Yiddish might be, oh, since I brought it up, we have some <laughs> listeners out there. I thought maybe we I'm do starting with like we Yiddish theory three hundred one. Yeah, okay. we should do a dictionary. Yeah, definition. okay, sorry, so go ahead. No, sure. No, yeah, well, Yiddish is a Jewish language among many that have existed over time. Um, it's a, it's a medieval German. That Jews were speaking along uh, in uh, along the Rhineland in sort of the Jewish pocket of settlement that came to be known as Ashkenaz, 
And as Jews migrated eastward into um, into Eastern Europe, into Ukraine and Russia and Lithuania and Latvia and Poland, um, they continued to be known as Ashkenazi Jews, and they brought this language with them. And whereas in Germany, it sort of continued to develop um, to be modern German, uh, the, the, the German that the Jews took with them into Eastern Europe became a language of Jewish identity. It kind of froze in its form and was added to with Slavic words um, and already had a core of Hebrew for particular kinds of religious, spiritual, religious and spiritual concepts. So it's, it's, a, it's a kind of German, German grammar, written in Hebrew script, and it contains uh, a lot of Hebrew in it and uh, a lot of Slavic borrowings as well. It has a tremendous literature. Um, it was used as the daily language of Jews of Eastern European, uh, or Jews of Eastern Europe for hundreds of years. Um, and in the 19th and 20th centuries, there was a, a really quite a big Yiddish literary scene, you know, that came sort of with the Enlightenment. That, and what I mean by the Enlightenment is when Jews started having a civil life, a civic life, wider than um, sort of the narrow shtetl life that Jews had been living. Um, Jews began writing secular poetry, secular literature, um, and all of that was done in Yiddish. And so we are the inheritors of a great literature. Um, Isaac Bashevis Singer was one of the great Yiddish writers back in Poland and then in the United States and is the only Nobel Prize winner um, for literature who wrote or whose original work was in Yiddish. And he's the only Nobel Prize winner who got up and did his uh, Nobel speech, Nobel uh, um, lecture in Yiddish. Oh, okay. And so, and then obviously in the 20th century, as the Americanization of the European Jews took place after the big migration in the early part of the century. Yiddish began falling off in the Jewish world. It did, and for a lot of people, the the Yiddish that, that folks know is um, punchline words. Um, there are very few words in there, and often the and often the humor of it is just that Yiddish sounds funny to us now, or something like that. There's there's a way in which uh, uh, there's an academic named Jeffrey Chandler who refers to Yiddish as post vernacular. Um, it's still in the uh, it, it's available in certain ways, but it's the subject of interest and curiosity. So when um, uh, Seinfeld makes a joke and there's a Yiddish word in the joke, the Yiddish word becomes a point of curiosity. Right. It's not just it's not used innocently just for its meaning. Uh -huh. um, and so we're in this sort of post-vernacular era with Yiddish. But that also makes Yiddish sort of um, fair game for interesting cultural and artistic developments. So, so there are a lot of younger people, younger than you and I, uh, who are doing, who are writing music in Yiddish. They're um, uh, writing poetry in Yiddish. They're using Yiddish in performance arts uh -huh. um, in very interesting ways. Um, there's a there's a revival of, there has been for some years, a revival of interest among young people in Yiddish. Right now, there's like a Yiddish farm camp. You can go to Yiddish farm camp. Wow. Oy, uh, <laughs> if you're a college student in, uh, or older, 
uh, interested in, in Yiddish. Uh, there, are, uh, there are Yiddish summer literature programs at the Yiddish Book Center in, what is it, at Hampshire College, which is where? That's uh, right. Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and um, YIVO, which is a Yiddish cultural organization uh, based now in New York, used to be based in Warsaw. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, YIVO uh, offers summer intensives. Um, a member of my congregation went and did a summer intensive at YIVO last summer for six weeks in Manhattan. And people are really interested in reclaiming, reviving, finding, like, what are the treasures that we can still use, even if we're not going to be living in a society where we're speaking Yiddish on an everyday basis. Right. Right. I, yeah, I remember we had a young woman who actually worked in Warsaw uh, a number of summers exploring Yiddish and the, the Jewish community there and, yeah. and all that. So yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's, a, there's a Yiddish revival also in Eastern Europe. So, right. so she worked at the... Um, there's a, a Yiddish sort of conclave conference that happens, I guess, every year in Krakow. In Krakow, right. Um, the, the interest in Yiddish, particularly in Poland, is very interesting. You know, there's a way in which it's, a, it's an attempt at some kind of a tikkun, at some kind of healing, because Poland is a place where you so viscerally feel the absence of Jews who had been so much of the population before the Shoah, before the Holocaust. And you feel it in, you know, the the village that my family came from in Poland was 80% Jewish. And only now has that town reached the population level that it had been before the, uh, before the war, when it was really a Jewish town. Right. And, and you think about the emptiness, the absence, the very palpable absence of Jews that Poles have grown up with. Right. And... Um, and that can play out in a variety of ways, some terrible. Right. But also it's played out in a way that's allowed some thinkers and artists and people of conscience to start reviving Yiddish poetry, Yiddish theater, um, in order to sort of um, bring back, bring life back to the ghosts. Um, I remember I was there in the early 90s with March of the Living, and we were in Krakow, and we went to one of the synagogues, and the uh, the speaker could only speak Yiddish to our group. Mm. And here I was, and I I was the translator. I was the translator, which I somehow managed to do without even ever having studied Yiddish, but given what I'd picked up over the years and a little bit of German. And I remember feeling so profoundly connected to this man because I could respond. I couldn't speak necessarily full sentences back to him, but I could translate what he was telling me, and it was like, whoa, that's such a wonderful feeling. Yeah, and not to be too um, uh, metaphysical about it, but there's something in ourselves, um, you know, for some of us who come from that background and for whom the transmission was cut off. Mm-hmm. Um, we do a periodic Yiddish tish at Ne'er Shalom, where we get together over lunch, and we work on some Yiddish poetry, and we don't do it in translation. We read it in the Yiddish, and we work out what it means. And to see people around the table who will, you know, will, you know, what is what does this word mean? All of a sudden, someone will have this deep memory of hearing it, and and the meaning of it will just pop out. And they didn't know they had that. And you just feel the pathos around the table as as people lean into this stream of connection that 
they feel with the Yiddish language, hearing it or um, or trying to understand it, realizing how much they understand without understanding word for word. Could you help us hear something in Yiddish today? <laughs> Why, yes. Uh, I hope that you have brought a little, a little, a little something. And a good segue into it. Um, this is one of my favorite Yiddish poems. There's so many gorgeous Yiddish poems. Um, this is one by um, a poet named Rachel Korn. Uh, she was born in uh, Poland. She escaped before the, the war eastward into China, and she ended up in Montreal. Uh-huh. And she was the uh, editor of a, a... You know, there used to be so many competing Yiddish literary journals. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. it was like bitter struggles yeah. between literary movements and journals, and she was the editor of one. Um, and she wrote, um, she wrote, she's thought of as a Canadian poet. And this is a, a one that's a little bit of a, um, it's a little bit of a, oh, okay, we're out of time. It's a little bit about what poetry can do in terms of reviving the past that's lost. So in a way, this is her remembering where she came from, uh-huh. an image of where she came from. It's called Punjene Zeitlieb on the other side of the poem, and I'll translate a bit as I go. Von jener Zeit Lied ist ein Sod Faranum, und in Sod ist ein Heus mit einem streunem Dach. On the other side of the poem, there's an orchard, and in the orchard, there's a house with a thatched roof. Es stehen drei Sosnes und schweigen sich heus, drei Schomrim auf ständiger Wach. And there are standing there three pine trees, like silent sentries. Von jener Zeit Lied ist ein Stezge Faran, On the other side of the poem, there is a little lane, and it's thin like the finest slice of a knife. And someone who is lost in time is wandering there, quiet and barefoot. Von jener Zeit Lied kennen Wunder geschehen noch eins in Atog, was es gmarne und gro. On the other side of the poem, wonders, miracles can still happen even now in a time that is gray and sad. Wenn er deufekt rein in dem Glas von der Schäub die zerfieberte Bankschaft von a Wundeke show, even now when the feverish longing of this wounded time is pressing at the window. Von jener Zeit Lied kennt mein Mame Arois und stehen auf der Schwelle weiter vertracht. Even on the other side of the poem, my mother can still step outside and stand lost in thought on the doorstep. Und mich rufen aheim, wie amol, wie amol. Genug sich gespielt schon, du siehst nicht, sie ist nach. And she can call to me like she did long ago, saying, enough playing already. Don't you see? It's night. We're all tearing up in the studio, I see. (laughs) It's such a gorgeous... It is a beautiful poem. It is. It is, yeah. But that song is being revived Mm -hmm. in Yiddish, and uh, and the Young adults in the Jewish community in different places in the world uh, are yeah. There's yeah, big movement among young people, among millennials and Generation Y, even to uh-huh. 
to engage with Yiddish. So, just uh, in the waning moments of our discussion here, um, wouldn't it be better, and I'll just put quotation marks around that because I haven't, wouldn't it be better to be focusing on the beauty of Hebrew poetry <laughs> and the language of uh, of modern Judaism and of the, the state of Israel and all that. What do you feel about that? Right. Well, that's it. <laughs> How much time is there for this? Because <laughs> yeah. the choice of making Hebrew the, the language of Israel was uh, an ideological choice right, right. that had to do with letting go of the shtetl past, the Eastern European past right. in particular, yeah. um, and stepping into sort of rugged, masculine um, imagery, right? The, the muscular pioneer uh, draining the swamps and taming a land. And there's a way in which the old country experience in Europe has been identified with the feminine. We call Yiddish mamelosin. We call right. it the mother tongue. And it's the tongue that's, it represents all that you learn through, through the line of women. And that was devalued in the Enlightenment and it was devalued in the Zionist movement. Um, women were valued for being, uh, you know, there was a great idea of equality of women, but it was women's ability to be strong like men. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody needed to be sort of masculine and rugged. And this is kind of a reclaiming in a certain way of the feminine in our culture. Mm. So in uh, about a minute we have left, um, so how do we balance that? How do we balance that? Do we look for more female poets in the Hebrew language and balance it? Do we compare it? Well, I, I, I don't mean to imply that uh, that the Yiddish literary scene is dominated by women. It's not. It's right. dominated by men, right. right, as is any literary scene in any country. Uh -huh. But I do think that um, we should go where our hearts lead us. Right. And if this is the language that's speaking to you, and it sounds a little bit like your grandmother, then all the better for you. Um, to be able to bring that into your life and and um, infuse it into the cells of your body and the thoughts of your the thoughts of your heart. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, and uh, it has renewed my curiosity in what Yiddish has meant to me over mm -hmm. over the decades uh, since I did that translation, and it did have an impact on me. Mm -hmm. I have to look more closely at yeah, what is to see what that. What that means. So, thank you so much for being with us today, Rabbi. Thank Keller, you, Ted. Thank you for having me. Congregation Er Shalom and Katari. And I want to thank our listeners for attending to us today at Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We look forward to seeing you in our next segment on March 28th.
Yeah. 